0: Hi, good morning. My name is Nelly, I'm an international student at UTPB, and I attend Redeemer's Odessa. I'll be taking the reading this morning from Mark 10, 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Thank you, Nelly. Hey, uh, if you're new, glad you're here. Good morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. If you're new, would you take a minute and look under your chair? There's a Connect card under there and a pen. Man, we'd be honored if you would fill that out and allow us to know how we can serve you, how we can love you, how we can gets you connected into the life of the body. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Uh, Matt will grab you one. And if you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. So we're just going to hop back in uh, through our walk through Mark. I want to start by way of review this morning. Our text today represents the end of a type of ministry that Jesus has been doing now. It's kind of a bookend for this particular and intentional discipleship that Jesus has been doing with his disciples. He's been training them. He's been teaching them. He's been showing them some things. The, the whole book of Mark can be broken up into, into three categories or three themes, if you will. What we see early on in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus has been performing a lot of miracles. Like, he's been healing a lot of people. He's been uh, exercising a lot of demons. And we get to chapter 8, and Jesus has an encounter with a blind man at a place known as Bethsaida. And Jesus, in tender love and affection and mercy, heals this man. And with this healing we see the ministry of Jesus shift, not completely away from the miraculous, but the focus changes to more teaching and training of Jesus' disciples. He's teaching them about more fully what he is about to accomplish and what his will for them is. So Jesus heals this blind man in Bethsaida, and as he and his disciples continue on their journey, Jesus begins to have these conversations with them. He asked them in chapter 8, hey, who do do people say that I am? Their responses range from, people say you're John the Baptist. People say you're Elijah. People say you're another prophet. Meaning culturally, many of the people in Jesus' day haven't fully grasped yet that Jesus is God. But rather they're saying that he is a good moral teacher, or a good example, a good man for us to follow, who is pointing towards a future Messiah, one who is yet to come. I think for us, just real quickly, like something practical uh, to consider. This isn't part of the text this morning, so this is is free for you to take home. Um, Something for you to consider. Does your understanding of the person and work of Jesus come from the scriptures, or are you basing your understanding, your ideas, or whatever you think about Jesus around other sources? Media, culture, your unbelieving peers, horrible theologians posing as pastors, anything or anyone other than Jesus himself. Are you getting your ideas about Jesus from other sources other than the word of God? So my encouragement for you this morning is to test all of that. Test your thoughts, test your beliefs against the Bible. Test what you think about Jesus against what the Bible says about Jesus. And if it doesn't line up with the Bible, and you believe what the Bible says about itself, that it is authoritative and sufficient, then you have to reject false teachings about Jesus. So Jesus <clears throat> excuse me. Jesus asked them, Who do people say that I am? And then he says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this confession. Peter says, You are the Christ. You are the promised Messiah. You, Jesus, you are the one we've been waiting for. So, out of that confession, then, Jesus begins to teach them about his coming death and his resurrection, and it's clear that they don't understand. Jesus, between the healing of the man at Bethsaida, And our text this morning makes three predictions. They're called passion predictions. Jesus is making three predictions about the cross and about the resurrection. He says, guys, I'm about to be brutally murdered, but I'll rise again. And all three times, the disciples just don't understand. We see this in the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus is transfigured before them and Moses and Elijah appear before Peter, James, and John with Jesus and Peter is fearful and so he starts trying to throw up these shelters, these tents like, God, it's good that I'm here looking at this. Jesus, I'm, I'm so thankful to be here. Let me, let me pitch you a tent so y'all can camp out. And then in the second prediction, Jesus is making this prediction. I'm about to get murdered and the disciples are like, Which one of us is the greatest? I think it's me. And last week, we saw Jesus making a third prediction, and James and John walk up to Jesus, and they're like, Hey, Jesus, when you get to the kingdom, will you save us the best seats in the house? You know, the ones next to you, one at your right, one at your left, so we can sit next to you for all eternity. All of these responses by the disciples reveal their lack of understanding and the weakness of their faith. And Jesus is tender, and Jesus is merciful to them each time. And Jesus loves them, and Jesus teaches them about service to him. So believer in here, if you are a believer in here, I want to tell you something. Be comforted. Even Jesus' closest friends missed it. Even Jesus' closest friends didn't have it all figured out. Even after the resurrection, they still struggled with some things. If you look at Galatians 1, Peter in Galatians 1 was having to be rebuked by Paul because he was being racist and he was being legalist, a legalist. And Peter is one of Jesus' best friends during his earthly ministry. And Peter did some amazing things for the kingdom. So there is grace for you to wrestle with things. There is grace for you to not have all the answers. Just don't be idle. Keep pursuing Jesus. Keep pursuing wisdom. Keep pursuing knowledge. And keep pursuing personal holiness. So our text today becomes really important. It serves as like the last bookend, the end to this time of discipleship and training. Because as we've seen in the last four or five weeks of of our walk through Mark, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem to be crucified. Next week, we will see him enter Jerusalem in what is known as the triumphal entry. But before he gets there, he has to go through the city, Jericho. And when he gets there, he meets this man. And before we dive in, I want to remind you of our text two weeks ago. Jesus says to the rich young ruler, sell all that you have. Sell all of your possessions and follow me. Jesus offers himself as a substitute for this man's idolatry, for this man's possessions. And he offers this man himself in exchange for his stuff. He says, lay it all down and follow me. Die to yourself and follow me. And the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Jesus said, It is impossible apart from the work of God on your life for a rich person to make it into heaven. And there are several reasons why this is true. And if you missed that week, you can go back and listen on our website. But one major reason is this. And for our purposes this morning, here's what we need to know and understand. It's difficult for rich people, which includes you and I living in this country, to inherit the kingdom of God. Because it's difficult to admit our neediness before God. When we have the stuff, it is hard to admit spiritual bankruptcy. So I want to call you all back to the scriptures this morning and ask you to lay down any preconceived notions you have or any wrong ideas about what following Jesus actually looks like, like the stuff we talked about earlier. I'd ask you to consider if you identify with anybody in this text this morning. And I'd also ask you just to consider if you claim to be a Christian and you are indeed not loving and serving others the way that Jesus does? Man, I'd just ask you to consider that. Are you loving and serving others the way that Jesus loves and serves others, including you? So let's pray. We're going to jump right in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your grace and your goodness. I pray that you would just be near and gracious to remind us of that this morning. Lord, I pray that you would just still hearts in this room this morning. Lord, just block out distractions in this room this morning. Lord, that we could really focus intently on the text this morning, Lord, and see you for who you are and your goodness and your nearness to us. Church, I'd ask if you're willing this morning that you'd pray for yourself, that whatever hardness of heart you are allowing to exist in your life, that you would just ask the Lord to tear it down this morning. Lord, we love you, Lord, we trust you, and we ask you to do a work in us this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So again, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jews from all over the known world are are making this pilgrimage towards Jerusalem to make their offerings. And that was the custom. Passover is a celebration where the nation of Israel remembered the time when they were in slavery to, to Egypt. And after the plagues and Pharaoh's refusal to let them go, uh, that's back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to send one more plague upon them. He told them he was going to kill all the firstborn sons in the land. But he told them, take a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb, and kill it and put its blood over the doorposts and the lentils of your house. Because the Lord was going to strike the firstborn of all the nation of Egypt. And when he saw the blood on the doorways, the Spirit of the Lord would then pass over the house, thus saving those inside the houses where the blood was. Jesus is knowing his purpose, his mission, and he is headed towards Jerusalem to make his offering to God. Jesus is going to offer himself, but not for the pardon and forgiveness of his sins but for the pardon and forgiveness of the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. But before they get there, they reach this ancient city of Jericho. In the Old Testament, there's a battle that takes place. If you grew up in Sunday school like me, you're like, Joshua in the battle of Jericho. Yeah, that place. Uh, The Israelite army marched around it several times and screamed, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Anybody else remember that song? Yeah, so Joshua 6 the Israelite army destroyed Jericho, but eventually it was rebuilt a few miles from the original place. It was a city that was kind of like a vacation spot in ancient times. It was known as the City of Palms. So it's like an oasis in the desert. Have you ever heard of those people like they're living in super cold places like Minnesota and usually they're like old retired people and during the winter months they leave Minnesota and go to a place like Florida and hang out all winter well Jericho is kind of like our version of Florida in the winter kings would have like vacation palaces there and it seemed like it was a really pleasant place and we can assume based on what we know about it that it was probably a pretty affluent place as well So immediately in our text, we're introduced to this guy. He's a blind beggar. His name is Bartimaeus. Ironically, his name means son of honor. But there is nothing honorable about his position and status. First of all, he's blind, which immediately makes him an outcast among his own people. And to make things even worse for this guy, it appears he has no one to help him. So he resorts to begging. Mark identifies his dad, and we don't know much about his dad, and I want to assume really nice things about about his dad. So perhaps his dad just doesn't have the means to support him, and so Bartimaeus has to beg. He's blind. He is wholly dependent on the kindness and generosity of others to survive. Likely Every single day, he posts up at the same spot on the side of the road, strategically located at the exit of the city, so people coming and going from Jerusalem would have to pass by him, and he sits there, and he begs for food, and he begs for money, day after day after day. He is completely marginalized in this society. And look what happens next. Verse 47 says, "And, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus hears this commotion around him and he inquires, hey, hey, what's going on here? And someone says, it's Jesus. By this point, Jesus has been on the scene about three years. Jesus is a well-known teacher and a well-known miracle worker by this time. Bartimaeus has definitely heard about Jesus. And look what Bartimaeus does. He says, Jesus, he's yelling, Jesus, son of David. Man, that's significant. This is the only time in the text, in Mark's gospel, where the term son of David is being attributed to Jesus. We see in the Old Testament prophecies and in the Psalms that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. That from the line of David, there is one who is coming, who will rule and reign for all eternity. God promises Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 that through his descendants, specifically one descendant, all of the nations on the entire earth would be blessed. And when God establishes the throne and sets David up as the king of Israel, he promised that one of David's descendants, specifically one descendant from the line of Judah, would indeed inherit the throne and reign forever. 2 Samuel 12-13 says, When your days are fulfilled, he's talking to David. This is God talking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Peter, the apostle Peter, has previously confessed Jesus to be the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them, hey, don't tell anyone. Because it wasn't time for Jesus to assume his throne. But here, this man is confessing Jesus. Jesus, you're the one. You're the Messiah. Jesus, you, son of David, you are the one. You're the one we've been waiting for. Jesus, you, this Jesus, please, Jesus, have mercy on me. And the text says they tried to rebuke him. The crowd tried to rebuke him. Hey, be quiet, dude. But the more they tried to get him to be quiet, the more persistent he was. He is unapologetically imploring Jesus to help him. Jesus, have mercy on me. I am helpless. Jesus, I am hopeless apart from you. Jesus, mercy, please. I am wholly dependent on everybody else around me for help. I cannot make myself see. I cannot make myself wealthy. I am now staking my entire existence. I am now staking my entire neediness on your kindness to me, Jesus. My dependency is now in you and you alone, Jesus. Mark makes it a point. Uh, Mark is historically like very succinct in his storytelling. But he makes it a point to call our attention to the persistence of this man. He is calling his readers to consider that despite potential opposition, man, be persistent in your pursuit of Christ. I mean, think about this for a second. I think this is a cautionary tale for people in our culture. We want what we want when we want it, right? Just me? Okay so here's how that plays out we pray really hard for something for that one time and when we don't get the results we want when we don't get the results we think we deserve when we don't get the things we think we ought to get when we treat God like some cosmic genie who is supposed to grant our every wish we grow weary we give up But here's what I've learned from my experience in trying to follow Jesus. God grows us. God positions us where he wants us. First and foremost, for his glory. Because that's what he wants, and that's what he rightly deserves. And then secondly, for our good. We continue to pursue Jesus. We continue to be faithful. We continue to be persistent in that pursuit. Because Jesus' promises to us are that he'll give us himself. But I think a lot of times we just give up. We just give up too easily in praying for things, in praying for people, in pursuing discipleship. We just get discouraged Because it's not like readily available to us when we want it. But the call to come to Jesus is not a one-time moment, but a moment-by-moment daily submission to Jesus. Salvation happens once in a moment, but the call to grow in Christ happens over time, day-by-day, moment-by-moment, as Christ grows us more and more like himself. So church, pray and pray with persistence. Your prayers can and probably shook like the excuse me, your prayers can and probably should look like the persistence we, we see here in this text. I'm pleading with you, Jesus. I am pleading with you, God, because apart from you, there's nothing I can do. I need you. I need your help. And a sweet reminder that we get through the word of God is that through the blood of Christ and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit interceding for us, we get to draw near to the throne of grace and confidence. Because we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We now belong to God. And God is pleased to answer the call of his children. It's really interesting to me that it now seems like the crowd's paying attention to to blind Bartimaeus. Perhaps for some of them, it's the very first time ever that they're paying attention to him. But they're not paying attention to him in love. They're giving him scorn. The crowd is trying to prevent this man from coming to Jesus. Much like the disciples of Jesus were trying to prevent little children from coming to him. But Bartimaeus does not care. He knows that Jesus is the one and the only one who can help him. And look at the response of Jesus. Verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart. Get up. He's calling you. So Jesus hears him and says, hey, get him. Bring him to me. I hear him. Let him come to me. So the text says they, people from the crowd, whoever they are, like, hey, he's calling you. Be encouraged, dude. He heard you. He's calling you. Jesus is always revealing himself in situations like this to be two things. Incredibly powerful. Yes, powerful over disease and affliction and at the cross and resurrection, powerful over sin and death. But he's also revealing himself to be tender and merciful As we've seen in our walk through Mark, here it is again. While he is headed towards his death, knowing full well what is in front of him, knowing full well he is about to endure the cross, like in six days from now, he is yet compassionate again towards this man. And he stops to meet this man at the point of his greatest need. Again, this isn't a sermon on prayer primarily. But Jesus actually commands you to pray. Devontae pointed something out to me this week that I know functionally in my head, but a lot of times it doesn't always make it into my heart. Yes, Jesus commands me to pray. Because he wants me to pray. Because that's how we get to know him. And that's one of the ways he reveals himself to us. So real quick, think about a significant relationship you have in in your life, like a spouse or your kids, best friend, whatever. I'm going to use my wife for an example. What if I told you, hey, I really love my wife? And you said, tell me why. Tell me how I should know that you love your wife. And then I say, I love my wife because we're friends on Facebook. And I like all of her posts, and I like all of the pictures that she posts, and I know some things about my wife because of what she puts on Facebook. But I never ever talk to my wife, I never ever spend time with my wife. Question Would that be a real thriving relationship? No. And some of us treat Jesus that way. Jesus commands us to pray. Because he wants us to pray. And he wants us to pray so we can get to know him. And he wants me to get to know him because he delights in me. And I don't think we think about Jesus that way very often. At least, at least I don't. And I know I'm not alone in here. But Jesus wants you to come to him as his younger brother or his younger sister, and receive love and grace and mercy and comfort that only he can provide you. What a wonderful Savior Jesus is, calling us to come to him. Even today, in whatever circumstance you were dealing with, Jesus says, come to me, there is comfort, there is joy. Come to me, I will heal you, I will restore you. And look at this exchange between Jesus and Bartimaeus. Verse 50. It says, And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Bartimaeus throws off his cloak. Remember, he's blind. So as he's throwing off this cloak, he's like removing any hindrance he has in getting to Jesus. It doesn't, his cloak doesn't need to trip him up. Other commentators suggest that this is a symbolic foreshadowing of what's about to happen. He's throwing off his cloak like his illness is about to get thrown off of him. And Jesus just asked him a straightforward, straightforward question, right to his heart. What do you want me to do for you? This is the same question That Jesus asked James and John in our text last week. What do you want from me, guys? What do you want me to do for you guys? And they say, give us the best seats in the house, Jesus. Look at the contrast between Jesus' disciples and blind Bartimaeus. To be clear, Jesus already knows what blind Bartimaeus wants. But he wants him to ask for it. Think about that for a second. Some people are going to appeal to the sovereignty of God and say, God knows what we need. God knows who will and who won't follow him. So why do we need to pray? Why should we live on mission? But That's not the case here. The Heavenly Father is well acquainted with the needs of his children. But in Psalm 81, he says, Open your mouths wide so I may fill it with your requests. And in Psalm 62, he tells us again, pour out your hearts to me. Pour out your hearts to God. So Bartimaeus says, rabbi, teacher, Jesus, let me recover my sight. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for status. He didn't ask for position. Let me recover my sight. Make me a whole person in my own society. Dr. Edwards says, James and John asked for extraordinary glory. Bartimaeus asked for ordinary health. The Lord Jesus, as God, hears this man's request. He hears his prayer to God, the Messiah, the Christ, and Jesus responds with glorious deliverance and salvation. Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus not only healed this man in a physical sense, but this man became a follower of Jesus in that instance. This man is now a disciple of Jesus. The healing, though miraculous, is not the primary focus of this text. In Luke's version of the story in Luke 18, after recovering his sight, Bartimaeus began to worship God. The text says he glorified God. And the multitude, the crowd around him that had just witnessed this healing, was led to do the same. Bartimaeus became a missionary of Jesus right there in that moment. He couldn't help but speak of the excellencies of Jesus. Jesus tells him, your faith has made you well. There's no earning here. Jesus has extended grace and mercy to this man, and it is received by him in faith. That same grace, that same grace, church, is extended to you and me as well. We must receive Jesus as the object, the whole purpose of our faith, and receive Jesus as the perfecter of our faith. We come to him just as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to look a certain way or behave a certain way or even know anything other than that I need Jesus to save me. And he changes us from one degree to the next until we are perfect and complete in him, lacking in nothing. Bartimaeus makes his request to Jesus as the only one who could heal him and the only one who could save him. And when Jesus saved him, He did so both physically, delivering him from the oppression of his blindness, but he also delivered him from the oppression of darkness. When Jesus restored this man, he did so to the uttermost. Body and soul are now fully restored, and Bartimaeus is a picture of the disciples that we ought to be. We have to recognize our inability and our neediness before Jesus. We have to trust that Jesus is the only one that can help us. We have to trust that Jesus will give us the grace and mercy that we need. In in church tradition, meaning the stuff that's talked about in the churches that didn't actually make it into the book of Acts, like Bartimaeus, is said that he followed Jesus all the way to the cross. It also is said that he became a major figure in the church of Jerusalem. I don't know if that's true or not, But it's not really hard to imagine, right? He just had a radical encounter with Jesus. He, unlike the rich young ruler from two weeks ago, Bartimaeus would submit to the lordship of Jesus in his life. So going all the way back to the beginning, I ask you to consider what following Jesus actually looks like. And then I ask you if you're related to anybody in this text. If you are in Jesus, I'd ask you to consider... I'd ask you to consider the time when you too were the blind beggar until Jesus gave you the spiritual eyes to see him. We were the poor and needy beggars until Jesus paid our ransom. And when Jesus Christ saves you, you are now receiving everything that is due him. You have been made righteous through the blood of Christ. Your sin no longer can declare you guilty because of Jesus You can now be forgiven of your sins because of Jesus. You've now been adopted into a heavenly family because of Jesus. So now you will receive the kingdom of God as an inheritance because you are loved by a good and perfect Father who is pleased with you. A lot of you need to hear that. God is pleased with you if you're in Christ. God is pleased with you, and he is pleased to call you his own because of Jesus. Man, Jesus is on his way to the cross in this story. And he stops. And he calls a man to himself who has nothing to offer him. We bring nothing to Jesus. Empty hands. Our good deeds the scriptures say are but filthy rags and Jesus is pleased to offer you grace and forgiveness through the cross he took it on in our place and through his resurrection he defeated sin and death and he declares you not guilty he stopped for Bartimaeus because he was worth Jesus' time and so are we There is hope for anyone who looks to Christ in faith. There is hope for anyone who admits our neediness and our sinfulness before God and who receives the pardon and forgiveness of sins. Now the church must respond to this. So there are like some immediate social implications for a text like this. There's some immediate social implications to care for the poor and the marginalized, which I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about this morning because that's not the main point of this text. But I will say this. When you see the response of Jesus in comparison with the large crowd around him, may we take on the posture of Jesus and not the crowd? May we love the poor and the marginalized in our communities. May we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. May you understand your depravity and your neediness before Christ came in and interceded on your behalf. And when you consider that, it should lead you to do a few things. It should lead you to love those who have nothing to offer you in return. It should lead you to foster and adopt kids or serve those that are And it should lead you to care for those who have nothing to give you and have nothing for themselves. Because before Christ, that was you. Spiritually destitute and broken. Spiritually bankrupt. And he rescued you. So how are you doing in that? Does the knowledge that your sin sent Jesus to the cross where he died for you does that do anything inside of you or is the cross of Christ something you hear about when you show up here and check a box is it something you hear about and it has no affection no effect on your devotion and affection to Jesus when you consider the grace of Jesus to you does it lead you to worship does it lead you to thankfulness or do you just remain unchanged Do you follow Jesus like blind Bartimaeus, or do you look like the rich young ruler who is unwilling to follow Jesus the way that Jesus wants you to follow him? There is no in-between. It's one or the other. If you are a Christian, and you're feeling discouraged or disconnected, man, a couple things. I would encourage you to pray that God would remind you how great his love for you is, and how rich And how costly the sacrifice was to redeem your life. David prays in Psalm 51 that God would restore to him the joy of his salvation. Man, make that your prayer too. In a real spiritual sense, what we see in Bartimaeus' life is a call to follow Jesus and lead others to do the same. Unfortunately, we also have this large crowd around Jesus, and the crowd is symbolic of a lot of inward-focused Christians, celebrating Jesus for what he can do, but in a very real sense, we're only focused on what Jesus can do for me. Like, what can I get from Jesus? I like Jesus just so long as my church preferences are met. I like Jesus just so long as he doesn't ask me to give any money. I like Jesus just so long as he doesn't require too much from me. I like Jesus, and everyone should want to worship just like me. Because that's how I want it. But if we are going to be the true church that God has called us to be, we have to not be inward-focused people. We have to be a church that pursues one another and others in love and compassion, in grace and mercy and truth with the gospel. Texts like this should lead you to mission and lead you to discipleship. So who are you pursuing? Who are you leading? Are you taking on the humility of Jesus or the arrogance of the crowd? Man, if you aren't pursuing Jesus or others, and you claim to be a Christian, I'd ask you this. I'd ask you to consider, are you meaningfully connected to a body of believers? Are you meaningfully connected to the church? Christ has called you into a family through his death and resurrection. So jump in, man. Love and serve others. Get plugged in deeply and invest deeply in community here and grow more and more like Jesus with others who are trying to grow more and more like Jesus. Consider how you're spending all of your free time. Is it in the Word or is it on your phone? We only get one shot at this. The text says our lives are but a breath. Here today, gone today. Let's not waste our moments, church. Finally, I'd just call you to consider the faith of Bartimaeus in comparison to the rich young ruler from a few weeks ago. If you weren't here, you can read a few verses back up. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, basically, who inherits the kingdom of God? The answer is those that know their neediness of Jesus. Those who know they need to depend on Jesus. Christ calls you to faith and repentance through him and has made that possible because of the cross and resurrection of Christ. Christ in love went to the cross in order to save our souls from the pangs of sin and death and heal your sin sick souls. In order to be saved and healed... You repent, you turn from your sin, and you cling to and follow Jesus. So let's take a quick second. Let's consider the rich young ruler's question, again, in light of our text this morning. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response is simple and can be summed up like this. Love God and trust that God is better than everything else. Everything in your life that you are trying to satisfy yourself with, Jesus is better. So you trust that, and then you follow Jesus. There is nothing you can do to earn God's love. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Jesus has done that for us. And I'd also tell you this, if you think you're too far gone, if you think you are have out the reach or the grace or the mercy of God, if you think you are unlovable or unsavable, I promise you that you are not. Because we are surrounded by men and women in the Scriptures, equally as sinful, maybe more so, equally as undeserving, maybe more so. And God is gracious and merciful to them. But you do have to admit your need for Him. You do have to admit that you are indeed a sinner in need of grace. You will need the unmerited favor of God to you. And you do have to believe that through the cross and through the resurrection, there is forgiveness for you. And that's the best news of all. Through Jesus, we get Jesus. We can identify with blind Bartimaeus. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And we see Jesus, high and exalted, seated with God, ruling and reigning and loving us in spite of us. And through his spirit, he is now interceding for us. So church, confess your neediness and receive life and receive forgiveness. Let's pray.